has misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis, and of course we didn't know it. We, we followed every diagnosis, like goldfish follow light in the bowl. You know, mm. we just, we went for everything whole hog, and when that turned out to be wrong, we went hearts open to the next possibility. We saw over 24 doctors during that 15 years. Welcome to the Lifelines podcast, brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. Helene Epstein is a writer, author, and patient and family advocate. She has been a published writer for over 20 years and is currently working on a book about pediatric misdiagnosis. Helene is a member of the American Society of Journalists and Authors, and the Association of Healthcare Journalists. And she is a member of the Brooklyn Writers Project. Yay! Yay. <laughs> Welcome, Helene. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead too fast, but I know that the fact that you had um, a son who was dealing with the medical establishment becomes later very significant, I know, when you're uh, writing a book. Um, maybe you could talk a little about that. Of course. Um, so my son was misdiagnosed over 15 times in his first 15 years of life. And it just must have been a real pleasure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the another doctor, another I mean, conflict. Yes, misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis. And of course we didn't know it. We, we followed every diagnosis, like goldfish follow light in the bowl. You know, mm. we just, we went for everything whole hog. And when that turned out to be wrong, we went hearts open to the next possibility. We saw over 24 doctors during that 15 years. Now, the first couple of misdiagnoses I was able to solve pretty quickly. It was the last one that took almost eight years. And at that particular point in time, over, I think, 14, 15 doctors for us to be able to solve. And he was 15, and we didn't think he was ever going to get out of bed. We, did, we weren't certain he was going to live. We were pretty certain he wasn't going to graduate from high school. And my whole life was completely focused on getting him better and reading everything I could. It was how I learned to read clinical studies. I, every time they gave me a disease, I read every clinical study I could possibly wow. read about it with a medical dictionary, um, either online or in one hand. Actually, and that sounds dangerous, too. <laughs> I, <laughs> I know that I tend to decide I have diseases that I have defined for me. As soon as I hear what they are, I assume that I have them. Well, we say, we, we say in the world of diagnostic error that, um, that some people just suffer from hypochondria. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some but, people do. But in this particular case, my, as my son became more and more ill with strange and bizarre symptoms that... Can you describe some of the symptoms that he was suffering Sometimes he looked as though he'd been plugged into an electric outlet. His arms and legs would jerk spasmodically. He would get fevers, mysterious fevers, that would appear, cover him in sweat, lay him down in bed, and then three, four hours later, they were gone completely. He would get mysterious all-over-body rashes. We couldn't figure out what they were, and by the time we got him to the doctor, they were gone. Oh. He, um, he was diagnosed at, at one point or another with ADD and ADHD, OCD, Tourette's, narcolepsy. He had complete memory loss. He had this 
um, enuresis, which is bedwetting, suddenly appear and disappear. You name it, it happened to him. And uh, I'm not going to tell you what the final diagnosis is. <laughs> we'll, we'll you have read the to book. buy my book. <laughs> we'll read the book for that. I desperately wanted to write about mystery illnesses. Oh, I'm sorry. And where were you writing? Where, where was, what was your outlet at the time? Who was printing your, your work? Um, well, at the time I was living in Westchester, New York, and I was working a lot with Westchester Magazine. But I was um, uh, redirected back in 2015 when my son, now an adult, gave me permission to tell his story. And that's the current passion project I know. Talk about that, please. Well, when he gave me permission, it was August of 2015, and I'm so happy that he allowed me. I didn't want to step on his toes at all. So I leaped into the project, and I was really, really lucky because I discovered that in September, the very next month, there was going to be a major paper released by the National Academies of Science and Medicine. At the time, it was called IOM, the Institute of Medicine, uh, and a major medical conference. And I got a press pass to the medical conference, and I got the opportunity to interview and write about all of the major players in the field of diagnostic error. The, um, the National Academy of Medicine paper uh, has been downloaded half a million times at this point, uh, and that's we're talking about doctors and researchers downloading it. Um, there are uh, obviously regular citizens. Um, doing that as well. But the topic has become important to me, and the organization who's very involved in this is called the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine, and I've gotten involved with them. You know, I can't help but ask about the other side. I'm sure from a parent's perspective, having 25 different diagnoses for your child becomes something that you just want to scream about. But I am wondering about the doctor's perspective. Do they feel like, yes, there are diagnosis errors, but it's not our fault. It's the fault of other things. Is that um, something that you can address? I think the world of medicine is divided into two groups, people who are very aware of the fragility of the process and those who think it's always someone else's problem and not their own. So we're trying very hard to educate the people who think it's someone else's problem and not their own. The um, uh, diagnosis is not a, a, a magic formula that happens when you walk into a doctor's office. Mm -hmm. It's a process, and the patient's a very important part of that process. Um, and there's a team, and the team includes everybody, the nurses who take your blood or urine samples, the um, lab technicians, the, even the receptionist uh, who reports back to the doctor what she observes is an important part of the process. And, um, and so I'm, my writing now is primarily geared towards parents and caregivers and regular patients, uh, talking about what they need to know and what they have to do to prepare to go into a doctor's office. All right, but you don't really end up with a kind of uh, um, person to blame. I mean, you don't have a divide with parents on one side and doctors on the other and, and that they're opposed. There are um, a lot of very angry patients out there. Uh, there's a, a lot of organizations where um, conspiracy theories are floated. Once a patient has been severely harmed, uh, or and I'm talking about medical error, I'm talking about medication error, I'm talking about surgical error, I'm talking about diagnostic error. 
once a patient's been harmed, their attitude towards the medical community is radicalized. And they can choose to um, complain bitterly and, and work through the courts system if they can, although that's getting harder and harder in the United States of 21st century. Um, or they can join an organization and become an advocate themselves. And the, the disease-specific organizations have lots of patient advocates. So how, how has this affected you personally? Because I imagine that over so many years you must have been frustrated and angry yourself, right? So how did you navigate your own emotional response to this experience? And then think about it. You're actually revisiting that experience over and over and over again. How do you manage that? I'm, it's funny because I'm working on a chapter right now where um, I, I nearly came to blows with a doctor. So um, I, I <laughs> this is after this is after Another we side of Helene. <laughs> Be careful. Yes, this is uh, after after we had figured out what was going on with my son, and I was in that same position as so many people find themselves today. I was blaming the doctor who had gotten it wrong, the, the pediatrician who had gotten it wrong repeatedly. And I felt that when I had told her what was really going on with him, she did not respond. She didn't, she didn't apologize. She didn't communicate. She didn't ask us how he was doing. She just clammed up, which is probably what her attorneys told her to do. I was not thinking about suing her. I was just, I wanted her to learn so that no one else would go through this. And uh, I'm Jewish, and I'm not a particularly observant Jew, but I was attending uh, a service with my husband and son, and it was a Chabad service where they separate the men from the women. And I'm sitting alone on the woman's side, which I was not happy about. Let's just start with that. <laughs> and in walks the pediatrician. Really? Now, this is supposed to be a day of atonement. This is a day when you say sorry to your fellow man for anything you might have done that offended them. And I'm watching her come in. And I could just feel my blood pressure rising. And I just, I can't sit in my seat. I want to go over and I want to talk to her right then and there. And I know it's going to cause a scene. And then I realize what I really want to do. Is I, want to is I want to choke the life out of her. <laughs> so I, I get up very quickly. I sneak around the back. I, um, I tap on the, these religious people. You're not supposed to touch. A woman's not supposed to touch a man. But I'm, uh, <clears throat> and no one's turning around. So I finally, I use uh, some paper in my hand and I tap the shoulder of the man in the last row. And I say, it's an emergency. I need my husband. And so he taps the man in front of him who taps the man in front of him. And finally they tap my husband and he turns around and he sees me and he takes one look at my face and he comes around to the back and he says, what's wrong? I said, give me the keys because if not, I'm going to kill her. And I <laughs> oh, no. A terrible scene. But that's a, it's an interesting question about, I think, doctors in some ways, and I'm not saying that they're all the same. Obviously they're not. I've met, we've all met all kinds of doctors and, and I think what's challenging for them or must be is that the desensitization, I can't even say that word, desensitization. They have to be desensitized. They have to be they desensitized. Have to be, right? yes. Because yeah. they, I mean, they deal with so it's much. It's going to be so hard for them too. Pain in the and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not making an argument in favor of the doctor, no, but no. I do realize that 
what we're dealing with with two think about the emotional context here between patient and doctor and where they're coming from right it, i can just it, it's a situation that's just waiting to explode with conflict and with all of this emotional turmoil it's just inevitable well obviously my my point of view has changed a great deal i know a lot more about how medical practices work now i've worked with a lot of doctors and medical researchers over the last few years. Um, I understand the pressures that are on them and how this kind of error could, could happen. I think that there is a movement now that is slowly gaining ground at uh, major healthcare systems and hospitals, which is to acknowledge and apologize. Really? And is that right? Yeah, we're, oh, we're, cool. we're just at the beginning of that, but there's... Um, there's an organization called the Institute of Healthcare Improvement, IHI, which is a think tank out of Cambridge, and um, the Patient Safety Foundation, the National Patient Safety Foundation, and they've been um, advocating for hospitals to acknowledge what the error is, talk to the patient or the caregiver about what happened, um, involve them in the process, and apologize to them. On the one hand, it brings a lot of closure to patients. And on the other hand, this kind of openness allows organizations to learn from their mistakes. I would imagine that the attorneys in the malpractice defense organizations are not happy about that trend. No, I think not. <laughs> so is it fair to say then that you have come full circle emotionally? Let's, let's say your emotional response to this whole thing seems to be healthier now that you have a better understanding but when you're dealing with new families, how are you managing it? How are you impacted, if at all, by their stories and their struggles? Well, their stories and struggles are heartbreaking, the, it, it, astounding in so many cases. You can't quite believe how they've been treated or what they've gone through. And, and, and yes, it's their perception of what's happened, but perception's reality when you're in pain. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. What do you mean by heartbreaking and what they've gone through? Can you give me a picture of that? Oh, there's um, so many people who have been, um, I'm not going to talk about diagnostic error, I'm going to talk about surgical error, just as an example. So there are so many people who, where surgery has gone wrong, and they're not told that something went wrong in the surgery. All they're told is, you should be fine, and they're sent home. But they're not fine, and they suffer for decades or in many cases, I'm listening to the children or the, or the spouses of someone who has passed away because of, of error. So the heartbreak is palpable. And really, all you can do initially is just listen. To give someone advice when they're in the middle of that kind of pain is useless. Sure. Uh, well, uh, but my focus as a writer is to work on what, what techniques what knowledge do we as patients need to know? Because while the major organizations are working on improving healthcare, in the meantime, we still have to go to the doctor. Oh, well, my uh, focus as an interviewer is to go directly to the drama. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's apparently what Diane is, is coming to. I'm just a... The happy-go-lucky side of things here. Come on, Diane, dig in. Where, well, where, where are we that, headed no, now? No, that's okay. I guess we're going to veer into a much more tempered, <laughs> no, 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 reasonable no. set of recommendations. What do you tell parents? Oh, that's well. That, that's the. Depends. I'm working on a column right now. Mm -hmm. I've just been hired by the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine, who have, who have been primarily a medical organization with um, a patient engagement committee that I've been serving on, but they've 
asked me to write a monthly column that's going to be patient-facing, and we're working on that right now. So I don't even have a title for you, but I do know that it will be on my website starting in November. Well, we'll add some show notes. When it's ready, just let us know. Absolutely. But, but what is really, if you had to boil it down to the most important thing for parents to remember, what is really good advice when they're walking into a situation where they're frustrated with the diagnosis they're getting for their child? What's important for them to know? I think there's a couple of things you need to know before you even walk into the doctor's office. So let's just talk about being a parent or a caregiver for a child. Children are misdiagnosed at a much higher rate than adults are. So um, adults are misdiagnosed at a rate of about 10% a year. That's American adults every year. That's about 24 million Americans. That's a lot. That's more than any disease. That's, three, I think, three times the cancer diagnosis rate. Um, I'll double-check that, but I think that's conservative. For children, although there are fewer children, so the number's not so gigantic, we believe the rate of diagnosis is much higher. And that's because, for three, three reasons. One is that kids can't advocate for themselves. Um, a, a child is, um, maybe they're pre-verbal, um, or they're a teenager, and they, their initial reaction is to lie or to cover, um, even if they haven't done anything wrong, uh, feeling ill feels like they've done something wrong. Um, the other thing is that when a child's been ill for chronic illnesses, at least three months of illness, of the same illness, when a child's been chronically ill, their sense of reality is completely changed. They have no idea what normal is, because remember, they're growing and changing. So having these weird things happen to their body is normal development for a child. Now you add illness into it, and a kid who has not slept well for years doesn't know that he's, he or she's supposed to sleep well. They don't know that that's a thing, that most people put their heads on the pillow and go to sleep and wake up six, seven, eight, nine hours later and don't get up, that that's the ideal thing for a child to do. So they don't complain about it. They don't tell anybody about it, and yet it's a really important piece of information. The other thing is that the most common ailments that kids come in with, and remember, most kids are healthy. Most kids are healthy. They have normal colds and flus and chickenpox. But when a child is not well, most of the time they come in with a headache of unknown origin or a stomachache of unknown origin. There are a few hundred diagnoses, and there are tens of thousands I'm sorry, let me flip that. There's a few hundred symptoms and there's tens of thousands of diagnoses that are possible. So what the main thing I tell to, to parents and caregivers is write everything down. Write down before you see the doctor what you're noticing that's important, what the child's complaints have been. Make sure the doctor knows what the child was like the week before this happened. Oh, you know, Johnny is usually a very happy, go lucky, upbeat kid, but he's been really sad and teary for the last two weeks and is complaining about headache and stomach pain. So you need to put it into perspective for the doctor. And what about advice to doctors? Um, advice to doctors? Mm -hmm. um, well, I don't write a column giving advice to doctors, but. Um, what we say to the patients is the most important thing you can do is at the end is to say, what else could it be? And that makes the doctor stop and think and allows them an opportunity to open their mind up to other possibilities. 
Okay, I want to I want to uh, change course and go back to your book and sure. talk about the writing of the book. Um, so now that you've got all of this experience, obviously this is going to impact how you write, what you write. How how has it been for you? What are the challenges, which may or may not be the same as for other writers that are dealing with a personal story that they're sharing? So it's, tell us a little bit about your book and how that writing experience has been so far. Well, I may say, sound a little sanguine now, but the truth is, as I go back and I do the research for the book, which means going back through all of his medical records, going back through all the doctor's notes, going back through all the test results, um, I have the equivalent of two reams of paper of just doctor visits, doctor notes, and test results. I get very emotional. It is hard. There even are, today? Even today. Interesting. Because I, I go back and I see the doctor's note and it just throws me right back into that moment. Or I remember a story of something that happened in fourth grade or middle school. And I am heartbroken all over again. And I have to put myself back into that place because at this particular point in time, the book is primarily a memoir but it's a memoir in which I'm telling my story and what I learned and what I did right and what I did wrong. And I did a lot that was wrong. I'm, the doctors are not the only ones responsible. I'm responsible too. So I, I find there are certain chapters that instead of taking a few days to write, could take me weeks to write. I find something interesting to do elsewhere in the apartment. <laughs> Suddenly I'm hungry or... Um, gee, I really need to fill out these forms. Avoidance is a gigantic issue. Oh, know, we which, all can do that. I mean, that's a typical writer response to stress, right? Of and, writing. and pain. Yes. And pain, of course. Yeah. Have you shared any of the drafts with your son yet? Oh, all of them. All of them? Yeah. How, what has been, has he been? One of his interested? major symptoms in the last two years of his journey, his odyssey, is um, terrible memory loss. And so he barely remembers anything. And this is a That's blessing that yeah. he barely remembers anything that happened to him. He remembers other things. He's an eternally optimistic kid. He used to say to me, he's so optimistic and his memory loss was so profound that if he was angry at me, maybe I forced some medicine on him he didn't want or made him do some homework he didn't want to do. Uh, he would say to me at night before he'd go to bed, he'd say, Mom, I'm really angry with you right now. Will you please remind me in the morning when I get up? <laughs> This is good. I like that. That's so sweet. What a sweet. I so mean, he's, he's astounded yeah. by some of it. Some of it he remembers. Um, his point, I, I would love to include his points of view on things, but he doesn't, he's a healthy young man. He does not want to go there. Sure. And he doesn't fully remember it. So it's all on you and those reams of paper. And those reams of paper. <laughs> what do you hope will uh, be the result once this book is out? What kind of uh, effect are you hoping to have in the world? I want it to be a bestseller. <laughs> um, I, I want parents to read it before the child is ill. I want people to read it because there, there are things that you can learn as an adult about your own health care from what we've gone through. My son's experience was extreme. It's really a rarity to have this level of misdiagnosis for this many years. So I'm hoping that, that people read it as a well-written book, but that they also take some lessons away and that it helps them in their own journeys. No villains? I no wish villains. you would give oh, me there a are villain. villain. There are oh, villains. No. In the book, I'm writing from the point of view of where I was at that particular moment in time. 
there is some looking back and that's how I can be helpful. I can say things like, I didn't know that I was supposed to do X, Y, and Z. But I try to keep the emotional state for myself, my husband, my child, the other family members, the doctors, I try to keep them in the moment in the book. So yes, there are villains. Would you consider the disease itself a villain? I know it's an odd question, but I, I just find sometimes when we're exploring something from such a different angle, because it's unusual, that maybe through the experience of writing that you find yourself kind of pushing back, not only against the medical you know, society, but the people you dealt with and, and the issues, but even the disease itself. Absolutely. I mean, who the heck asked for that? I mean, <laughs> where the heck did you come from? And um, it just, you know? Absolutely. There's, um, uh, in all the stories I used to read my son when he was younger, there was always dragons and there were knights and there were uh, magicians. He loved magicians. And uh, are, do either of you garden or have you ever gardened? So, so sometimes when you're gardening, you come across a, 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 a vine or a, um, a weed that is pernicious. It is dug deep in the ground. And I would battle those. I remember fighting them and thinking about fighting them like a dragon. And I would think about it as though I was fighting my son's disease, this unknown disease. If I could only get this deep-rooted weed vine out of my garden, my son would be okay. And you did. That's such a poetic, beautiful way to look at it. And you did. And you good kudos to you, not only as a mom, as a writer, as an advocate. My goodness, like think about the course of your life. You, you didn't see any of this coming. No. And um, great that you had the gift and the talent of writing. And I'm saying that because as a member of the group, we know what you're capable of. So wonderful that you were able to to alchemize that into something so powerful. Thank you. And we're all going to benefit now, which Thank is wonderful. Us healthy and, and not so healthy. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you about something on your website, um, this organization, Mothers Against Medical Error. What, oh, what is this about? So that's an organization run by a, a woman named Helen Haskell. Um, she is the premier patient advocate. She is especially for parents. Um, her son, Louis Blackman, was killed at the age of 15 due to medical error. They went in for what was supposed to be a simple procedure that was um, not uh, an emergency. It wasn't to save his life. It was something that would help a medical problem he was having supposed to be better. And, um, and she felt that she and her husband went in innocent and trusting, they didn't know what questions to ask. They didn't know how to advocate for themselves, and their son died. Which I interviewed her for uh, one of my articles, and in um, in talking to her, both of us were, were crying. You can you can't hear the words either of us were saying on the tape. Um, I had to sort of write some of it from memory because we were both just sobbing at one point. Um, but like most of the the people that I know, both fathers and mothers who have taken their child's death and turned it into action. Um, mothers Against Medical Error is very active on Facebook. She uh, sits on the boards of many healthcare organizations, many nonprofits that are doing research into the area of patient safety. She is a, a well-spoken, um, quiet power. I, I really admire her greatly, and I, I'm lucky that I've gotten to know her and I get to work with her 
on a couple of committees. Has she has she written anything? That I, I'm not as familiar with with the group, unfortunately. Because um, it's interesting because you you you'll be representing this or you know this group um, with your writing. Right. She's the, the she's the chair of our patient engagement committee, for example, at CIDA, okay. at the Society of Improved okay. Diagnosis and Medicine. Um, Helen's not a writer, but she is a good speaker. She yeah. speaks frequently, and she's um, she's has an organization that is there to be supportive of people who are going through mm -hmm. um, a problem. And she does a lot to try and teach parents how to go into any medical situation well-armed. Do you think you have another book in you that is specifically for parents, and like a how-to? Like, you know, we have the what to expect when you're expecting. Well, what about what to expect when you're not expecting disease? <laughs> I mean, maybe that's a bad title. It's an I'm, awful title. I'm good. But, that's fine. I'll I steal that might, title. You might you. take it. <laughs> um, I, think that, I think that after writing the memoir, there's a, a lot of different places I can go. Yes, I can write a um, sort of a how-to book uh, for parents. But I think the next thing I want to tackle is um, senior citizens. Huh. Diagnostic error and patient safety issues are um, even worse for senior citizens than they are for children. And I have my own stories to tell about my own father uh, I, uh, and how he was um, mistreated. I have to say, though, that he lived to almost 95, so he wasn't so badly mistreated, but the process was difficult and we learned a lot about it. Well, thank you so much. You are... Um doing this column and it is going to be available when? in the fall right November 2018 um, and it'll be um, it'll be launched on my website as well as on Sidham's website and I'll uh, provide you with links for the podcast and when when do you have any idea yet when your book may maybe published I mean what's it? you don't have to know but we're just curious just to no I had a, a previous version of it that um, that was a, more of a nonfiction, um, narrative nonfiction piece that was more about the, the, the advice and the stories and not necessarily a memoir. And um, I had a great agent and she had it seen by 32 publishers and it was not picked up. And I realized that what I needed to do was tell the powerful dramatic story in order to get the word out and not necessarily do it from a dry professorial voice. What I especially like about that is that there are a lot of people who would go to the trouble of getting an agent, a great agent, and then um, having it distributed and being rejected and stop there and not get a positive message out of it. And you went through that process and I imagine it wasn't easy to get an agent and then get your work submitted to 32 major publishers um, and you're taking a lesson from it as to how to revise your writing approach instead of just feeling rejected. Although maybe you did have a minute when you felt rejected. <laughs> well, I yeah, called you. Every writer, every writer has been rejected. I mean, that just comes with the territory. Well, I called, I called you guys when that happened. But, um, I think what was really great for me, actually, is if you can get a rejection letter, um, you should get the rejection letters I got. Because of the 32 publishers that said no, 31 of them wrote some very nice notes about how much they loved the writing and they loved my voice and they thought it was an incredibly important topic. And they all came back to the same problem. They didn't think there was a market for it. And I realized that that was my fault and not anybody else's. And that was something I could do something about. Right. Well, well, let's talk about 
um, this is what we believe anyway, Diane and I. One of the reasons we're hosting this podcast is because we really believe that the written word has a lot of power and it can change things. It can inspire people. It can motivate people. It can help us all feel something that or, or learn something or get something when we most need it in a very private way, right? Because I think book reading books is still a very private and sweet and enjoyable and amazing thing that we can all turn to. So if I, we like to ask everyone at the end of the interview, if you were advising other writers who have decided that they have gone through some journey that is as challenging as what, or, you know, as what you've been through, what would you advise them? How would you advise them to approach the project, um, write? Uh, do you have any writing tips for, for this type of writing, which is very difficult, um, which is memoir and slash narrative, right? What, what would you say to them if you were in a room of a whole bunch of them just looking at you saying, please help us, we want to share our story? <laughs> I think you have, to, you have to first tell the story. You have to get it out of your brain and out of your soul and onto the paper and not worry about, oh, is this word correct or is this the way I want to describe it? Just get the story down and, and on paper. And then you have to go back and perhaps research your own life. Find a way to be a little more objective about what happened and learn what you can about what you were going through and then go back and reread what you had written and see whether or not you as a, um, a person who now has the facts in hand want to change anything. Um, not necessarily the voice, but whether or not you want to share any of the lessons that you learned. One of the hardest things about memoir is knowing what is the point of writing the memoir. Why are you writing this? If it's just for catharsis, then write it and put it in a drawer. If it's to um, share something that you've learned from it with others, then you have to go back and you have to find a way to get that lesson throughout the whole book. It can't just be, here's this horrendous tale, and then at the end, and here's what I learned. <laughs> right, right. And, and are there more than, I mean, sometimes you would argue there are more than one, there's more than one lesson, right? And, you know, especially when you're dealing with so many different people in, in your situation, so many characters that came in and out of your life, so many challenges, the medical was one thing, the disease was another, the child just going through a growing, you know, their growing developmental phases, that's a whole other thing, It's right? a whole other thing. So, so yes, what's the... What's the message for your memoir? And it could be multiple messages, absolutely. But as a writer, you want to pick a couple of main ones and hone them. There's a thing about making speeches. They always say, um, say what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you said. Right. Um, and, um, and books have structure as well. And a memoir needs to have the same sort of structure as a novel. I agree. And this thing that you said about researching your life, I like that a lot. What are some ways that you researched your life? Well, I went back, first of all, and I got all of the medical records for, for my son. Um, and I went and found my old diaries so that I could remind myself what was going on in our lives at that time. Not necessarily so that it gets into the book, but more so that it gets into my mindset. I can put myself back into that time period. So my book covers a 16-year time period. And a lot happened during those 16 years. And then, of course, will be an epilogue just basically it's letting everybody know how, how great my son is now. Knock wood, if there's any wood to knock. <laughs> well, thank you so much. 
Um, I can't wait to actually pick up the book and read it. And the column. And we're looking forward to the column, too. So we'll add that to the show notes it's, as soon as it's available and the title of the book, of course. Um, tell, tell our listeners where they can find you online and follow the work that you're doing, the writing that you are currently doing. Well, you can find me on my website, which is hmepstein.com. I'm at Twitter at, uh, at hmepstein. And I have a Facebook page, which you can find by putting in Helene M. Epstein author. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.